0: Welcome, everyone, to the Your Amigos podcast. We're here with Matt Golsky uh, today. We're going to talk about Checkmate 274, uh, adjuvant nivolumab in urothelial cancer, exciting new data, sort of first of its kind. Uh, and we're going to talk about sort of the big picture and what it means and, and where we go from here. So, Matt, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself briefly, although you've been a regular guest on the podcast, might And might add, and then just give us some, some high-level summary data, and we'll, we'll sort of take it from there. Sounds good. Thanks for having me again.
1: Um, So Checkmate 274 is a phase three randomized study uh, of adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo in patients with high risk uh, urothelial cancer. Um, This is an adjuvant study, but it's important to remember that this is an adjuvant study that's different than adjuvant studies that have been done in bladder cancer in the past for a few reasons. It's different because this trial included patients who received neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy but had pathologic T2 or higher residual disease, so that's never been addressed in a randomized study before, and also included patients who didn't have neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy but were cisplatin ineligible to receive adjuvant chemotherapy, also not tested in a randomized study mm-hmm. before, so different than the prior adjuvant studies. Uh, upper tract disease was included in this study. So it was patients with uh, urothelial cancers anywhere within the urethelial tract who had definitive surgery. Um, and the eligibility were pathologic T3 or higher if no neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then residual pathologic T2 or higher if patients had prior neoadjuvant cisplatin based chemotherapy. The uh, randomization was stratified based on the use of prior cisplatin based neoadjuvant chemotherapy, based on the nodal status, and based on PDL1 expression. Which was using the 28-8 diagnostic, with uh, which stains yeah. uh, in this assay stains tumor cells, uh, and the cut point is less than one percent or greater than or equal to one percent. And then patients were randomized to nivolumab at uh, twi- uh, every other week schedule for up to a year in the absence of progression or prohibitive toxicity, uh, or to placebo IV infusions every two weeks. Um, the primary endpoints included disease-free survival in the overall population and disease-free survival in patients who had tumors with pdl one expression greater than or equal to 1%. And then secondary endpoints included non-urothelial tract recurrence-free survival, and I'll, I'll explain that, um, and, uh, and overall survival. And then there were some exploratory endpoints as well, which included quality of life.
0: Um this- okay, this... hey Matt, before you, before you go into the day, I have a yeah. question about the eligibility. You said T3 in patients who didn't get neoadjuvant and T2 if they did. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. And then I, I want to ask you about the, the rationale for that and if you think it affected the results. And then same for inclusion of upper tract. Obviously, with, with POUT data, you know, adjuvant therapy is, in my opinion, relatively standard there.
1: Yes. So let me address both of those. Um, they're somewhat related. Um, so the the prior neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we've known for a long time that if you have pathologic evidence of residual disease after prior cisplatin-based chemotherapy. That is a bad prognostic indicator. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the best biomarkers that we have. It's identifying patients with aggressive tumors, uh, unfortunately, retrospectively after they've received chemotherapy. So we know that's bad. We know that based on um, observational studies, uh, pathologic T2 or higher seems to separate pretty well patients who do much worse versus patients who don't. Um, So that was the rationale for that. Of course, pathologic T3 or higher in the absence of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that's really consistent with prior adjuvant studies uh, in treatment naive mm-hmm. patients, in systemic therapy naive patients. And then the upper track question so remember, POUT didn't include patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and so those patients were potentially addressed mm-hmm. in this trial. And then the only overlapping group of patients that were enrolled in POUT in this ultimately will have probably some um, clinical practice implications, or at least considerations, is that patients who have upper tract disease who didn't have neoadjuvant chemotherapy, yes, currently, based on POUT, those patients could be offered, I'm sorry, who are cisplatin ineligible, those patients could be offered carboplatin-based chemotherapy, or um, they could potentially be offered uh, adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade if indeed this becomes standard of care and, and approved by mm-hmm. regulatory agencies. Uh, and that's, that's really the one situation in this trial that there's actually other randomized data to support a
0: different strategy. Mm-hmm. And so it may, may have the, the, T3 and T2. with What about letting, your let them
2: get back to the results, Brian? Let them keep going. Uh,
1: <laughs> so so, so I, I told you what the primary endpoints were, disease for survival. Um, and that's what this uh, abstract is reporting, that primary endpoint. Remember, the endpoints are event-driven in this study, including OS. And so there's no OS data because there haven't been the uh, number of events required to trigger an OS analysis. Um, the study showed uh, that in the intent-to-treat population, um, the disease-free survival was improved with adjuvant nevo with a hazard ratio of 0. 0.7, which reached the threshold for statistical significance. And, and uh, that was associated with a disease-free survival of 21 months with adjuvant nevo versus 10.9 months with, uh, uh, with placebo. In the pd one greater than or equal to 1% subset, the disease-free survival uh, was uh, improved with a hazard ratio of 0. 0.53. Uh, and the uh, median DFS in that group was 10.8 months. Uh, so yeah, identical to what was seen in the intent to treat with placebo, um, but was not reached with uh, the with, uh, nivolumab arm. I should mention the median follow-up of 29, uh, I'm sorry, 21.9 months. Um, other endpoints that were reported, and I'll just probably note uh, two more quickly so we could get on with the discussion and questions. There's an endpoint that was pre-specified called non urothelial tract recurrence-free survival, and that's a secondary endpoint. The relevance of that is that disease-free survival in this study um, is defined including recurrences within the urothelial tract. So, of course, patients with upper tract urothelial cancers are at risk for developing bladder cancer, and patients with bladder cancer are at risk for developing urothelial cancers of the upper tract. Whether or not those arise from the same clone or are separate events, of course, there's data to support both of those scenarios. We never know that in an individual patient. But that is considered a recurrence in this trial um, if the uh, tumor is invasive. If it's a low-grade papillary tumor, not a recurrence, otherwise it's included. So this non-urothelial tract recurrence-free survival uh, endpoint uh, takes out those uh, local recurrences within the urothelial tract, but includes local recurrences in the pelvis, like pelvic nodes or soft tissue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that, uh, uh, for that endpoint, uh, adjuvant nevo was associated with an improvement with a hazard ratio of 0.72. And for the pd one high, population 0.54. The safety was consistent with NEVO uh, in terms of other studies, uh, and um, we reported one quality of life endpoint in this analysis. There's more to come, but using the QLQC30, which is a global health status questionnaire, um, there was no deterioration in quality of life in the adjuvant NEVO arm versus placebo. So Matt, that sounds all pretty good. Um, What is what are the next steps for it do you think i mean clearly
2: this is opinionated and i'm really happy to if to, you not to say things you haven't got os <laughs> but you have got pfs you've got a biomarker pfs that looks really good the shape of those curves look pretty reassuring the shape of the itt curves at a 0.70 is more uncertain um a 0.70 disease-free survival doesn't always translate to os Um, whereas the 0.54 looks like it, those curves look pretty good to me what do you think and I don't want to you know what 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 happens next do you think the FDA and EMA should approve this Um, do you think it should they should approve it in unselected patients do you think they should approve it only in the biomarker positives should it be a provisional (laughs) approval Um, what's what's your take
1: yeah, so I think obviously great questions, and I, I won't pretend, <laughs> I, I, I won't pretend to uh to be able to um re- read into the all of the thought processes that go on from a regulatory standpoint. <laughs> what what I will say is that um you know this in not to minimize the impact of other solid tumors and the risk of recurrence in the anxiety, not to minimize that at all, but this is urothelial cancer with a risk of recurrence of 60% in these patients who are randomized to placebo. And we know that patients who recur, particularly those patients who recur outside of the urothelial tract, unfortunately have very poor outcomes. So I think one could wait for survival data, or one can reason that um, this this, uh, effect size certainly is compelling in a disease where when it recurs, um, unfortunately, um, leads to significant morbidity and mortality. I think the shape of the curves is reassuring. Um, but as we've discussed on this podcast before, um, you know, drugs are approved based on how patients feel, function, and survive. Uh, and, um, and so there's the nuance, uh, whether or not this will translate into that. And I think all, this, all the signs are pointed in the right direction.
2: Matt, how do you know you're not just treating early metastatic disease and inevitably um, the curves, the PFS curves come back together? And uh, because there is a lymph node positive, we've got minimal residual disease. um, That's not doesn't always represent visible lymph nodes on CT. Some patients clearly are going to be cured by surgery alone, maybe 40 percent. And so. How do you know you're not just treating early metastatic disease and you're actually really changing the biology and leading to long term durable remissions?
1: I I think you are treating early metastatic disease. I think that's the definition of adjuvant therapy. Um, And the question is, the real question is, are you treating early metastatic disease and eradicating it and or changing the natural history of that process with early treatment or not? Um, And I believe
0: the survival curves are compelling enough to suggest that you are. And that's always the question is, are you curing people who otherwise wouldn't have been cured as opposed to just delaying the whole group?
1: Yeah. And I think that right. that's absolutely the, the the right the right question to be asking. And I think it can't be answered definitively right now. But right. I think all the signs right. are pointed in that direction.
2: Now, Matt, I did a Twitter poll the other day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Always gonna, dangerous.
1: Well, I'm going to. I don't know who
2: replied the Twitter poll. I don't want any rude comments from you about about this, but all <laughs> of about my my failing <laughs> Twitter account. But um, but what are, what are three? We had about 320 people replied. Who knows they are? Who they are? Um, not all friends and family. Tell me, um. <laughs> The 70% of people felt that OS was needed before it was changing practice. They obviously hadn't seen the results, but I benchmarked off the EORTC study that had a PFS, I think, of 0.4 and an OS of 0.75. And, the, and 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 so there was a feeling it needed to be better than that, or it needed to have OS. What's your What's your feedback to those three hundred or t- two hundred people who felt this
1: was premature? So I, I have several opinions about that, but one of them is <laughs> <laughs> one one of them is that I think oftentimes we say things very differently than what we do when a patient is sitting in front of us. So I think, you know, a, probably a little bit of a grain of salt is needed in terms of polls like that. Um, and why can I say that confidently? I mean, we just brought up the fact that pout is considered a standard of care. Pout is based on a primary endpoint of DFS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I I cannot imagine why adjuvant chemotherapy showing a DFS benefit would change practice, but adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade, where in the patients that I treated on this study, I could not tell who was getting placebo or not And clearly bad things happen with these drugs. So I wouldn't minimize that. Um, But this is a different therapy than adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, And if it changes practice in upper tract disease uh, based on pout, I think that, you know, the same sort of criteria apply here. And then- Uh, Remind me, what was the DFS uh, hazard ratio in POUT? I don't remember. uh, I think Tom just said it was it was zero point five or something like that. I thought it was closer to zero point six. I think it's zero point five. I I I can check it. Okay, so about the biomarker positive here about. Um, About the same. And, and, I, yeah. I, and I would say the shape of the curves are a little bit different, too. But but that aside, yeah, clearly the, the latter portions of these curves are not stable. And so, you know, that, that yeah. has to be taken with a grain of salt. And then the last comment that I would make is that, you know, I started by saying that this is a different population than the adjuvant studies that have been done in the past. So this is not the EORTC study. This is a completely different patient population. These patients would not have been eligible for that study. Um, So this is uh, a population of patients for which we don't have adjuvant treatment options. And then the final point is that in the ORTC study, DFS was a secondary endpoint. Um, The study was powered for survival. It closed early. This is meeting both co-primary. Matt, Matt, can you hear me?
0: So if if you were faced with a.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, I felt yeah. like
0: we were being cut
2: off there. So just on that <laughs> issue. So in the um I, see, I had an extraordinary experience, I should say. I will briefly but, but so I was in a meeting, I well, I think it was a I'm not sure what meeting it was, and um uh, and I was doing the, the rehearsal check and and the chap put his head in his hands and just looked at me and said I I was talking quite a lot, as you know. And he said, You know, you need he said, Tommy, so you need to be quiet now. I interrupted really badly. And then I interrupted again, he just put his hands, his head in his hands said, I can't do this anymore. Um
0: yeah that's how i feel i I tried to keep my (laughs) interruptions to a minimum
2: today but i did want to i did want to come back to two issues the first
1: it's nice you have some insight well it's growing i didn't i didn't
2: until this morning the
1: the first the first step is admitting you have a problem so two things
2: really important first the ERTC study it did let some patients who hadn't had neoadjuvant chemotherapy in before and it so it wasn't exclusive. Only forty six percent of patients in your
1: trial had neoadjuvant
2: chemotherapy. Is that right?
1: Yeah, but but the EORTC study you had to be cisplatin eligible. So this study did yeah. not treat any patients who were cisplatin eligible uh, in the adjuvant setting uh, unless they refused cisplatin-based chemotherapy.
2: But 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 the biology of the disease is probably not altered hugely about whether or not they're eligible for cisplatin-based therapy. Is that fair?
1: Uh, that that's right. But but again, that so these patients would not have been eligible for the ORTC study. And so we don't have a We don't have a, 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 a data set uh, for comparison. But
2: it doesn't mean it wouldn't have worked or would have worked.
1: Well, it, it's not that it wouldn't have worked. It's that you, it's that you can't actually. Translate. Oh, like, okay. yeah. I so that.
2: I said that. there's that's no data. The second yeah. thing, and this is relevant, I think, is the atezolizumab program hasn't been as successful in this space. And, yep. um, you know, you and I have had these discussions, and anyone who's listening, Matt and I and many others have had discussions about urothelial cancer and immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I think one of our conclusions is there are more similarities than differences. And 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 you know, the question I you know I need to put to you, I guess, is in the um, in the atezolizumab study, the hazard ratio in the biomarker positives were 1.01. Now I can totally explain that. I'm happy with that in that biomarkers behave differently. And that was a problem. um, And it could be a biomarker issue. But in the ITT population, the hazard ratio was 0.89, which doesn't look great um, and clearly is negative. And so these are quite different from each other. Do you have an explanation for that?
1: So uh, I think there's a few hand-waving explanations, and one that's been raised a lot is, you know, different baseline characteristics, and I'll, I'll accept that there's probably some of that going on, but, you know, I think one of the nuances that warrants discussion, because it's important for how we design studies in the future. So in Invigor10, um, the patients who, uh, who um, in the sort of disposition, uh, who we don't have, who are categorized as uh, <laughs> coming off prior to recurrence or survival endpoints. Uh, in the other category, quote-unquote other, that's 20% of patients in the, in the um, observation arm and 10% of patients on the atezolizumab arm. Um, we'll see what this is in, in 274, but it's, it's about 5%. Um, so we're seeing a differential early dropout of patients randomized to observation on Invigor10 by 10 percent compared to the atezo arm, uh, that's <laughs> that's potentially informative censoring, uh, which is yeah. which has the potential to really impact these Matt, curves. You, wait, wait a second, why I've would got that a really be? Here, Carl. I've, got, I've genuinely got a good question. <laughs> Seems <laughs> unlikely, but go uh, ahead.
2: <laughs> the progression-free survival of the placebo arm in your trial was, or the study which your group did was, 13.7 months. And in the Atezo arm, in the, the, the control arm, of the Atezo arm was 19.4 months. So that suggests that you've got the control arm doing. Sorry, it's not 19.4, 16.46. So the control arm in in uh, in the two trials is performing slightly differently. Is that fair? Yeah, so that, that's
1: totally my point, oh. right? So say you're a patient uh, and you have bad pathology on your cystectomy specimen, and you enroll in this randomized study, and you're randomized to observation, and you say, I don't want observation, uh, and, and you drop out, say that that is disproportionately impacting patients with the really bad pathology. So the only patients who aren't early censored are the patients who have pretty good pathology and they say, yeah, I'd follow up. Um, So again, if patients are early censored for a reason that's different on the two treatment arms, Mm -hmm. then that can really mess up your study. Uh, and that, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about the ethics of doing placebo controlled trials in the adjuvant setting, and it's not the most friendly thing to do for a number of reasons, but I do think we have to pause and, and think about how this might be impacting our studies.
2: Um, my, my last question is my last question. What effect does that have potentially on your survival signal? Do you think that the fact, that, because of course the map study also didn't show a survival signal um, on their randomized patients. And I'm guessing that, that do you think that that will, will fa- increase the chance of you having a significant survival signal? Or has all you managed to do is just look, at, is to find an accurate disease-free survival and you end up with the same survival curves in the, in the future?
1: No, I mean, I, I think that if, if... If depending on the nature of early dropout, if you if patients withdraw and you can't follow them for survival, then it could potentially impact that endpoint as well. Great.
2: Brian, you got a question.
1: One
0: last question. First of all, congratulations. Yeah, We should both say data. that.
2: I and mean, I think it's um, terrific. It's,
1: and I agree with what you...
0: you stop interrupting me. <laughs> it's great. It's it's great data. You know, positive phase three, especially in this setting, aren't a dime a dozen. I think it will impact practice somehow some way, maybe to be determined, but but congrats, so my, I want to go back to the upper track question, sorry to focus on a maybe a more rare subset, but let's assume it gets a, that nevo gets approved you know, and you have you have a patient in front of you with, with upper tract disease, are you going to choose chemo or nevo based on say eligibility of the trial or other characteristics, or are you just going to sort of lean one way or the other maybe based on toxicity et cetera
1: so so it's a really complicated um, uh, discussion and decision at this point made more complicated by the fact that, and I'll say, I'll say it, there's going to be over interpretation of subset analyses. Um, (laughs) Always. And and that over interpretation is particularly relevant to this question that you're asking. So, uh, so right now, um, yeah, I think it's a difficult decision. You just have to lay out all the data for, for a patient.
2: Um, We, uh, we, uh, we, um do our best to avoid subset analysis after the i d m c. fiasco podcast with uh, with david Dermot um, <laughs> um matt look what a great result number one uh, congratulations to everyone involved and I can see the authors and the team has done a, an amazing job number one number two is I think it's super important because the atezolizumab data did suggest to us that actually this whole movement into this perioptive space was was you know, a bit futile and I think this data contradicts that and we've got five or six other really exciting trials in this space some neoadjuvant studies some combination trials even an EV study going on so I think it just re-energizes this space and you know you guys need to be congratulated for a fantastic
1: job um and and i think that your data with ctdna in invigor 10 is completely consistent i mean the the message is really more consistent than not at this point
2: yeah i mean that that ctdna data is is um is quite promising because i suspect it's my feeling is it's probably a more accurate way of identifying patients that need therapy than tissue-based biomarkers i mean we'll have to wait and see um, but uh I think that discussion around how we select patients is relevant. Clearly, in the adjuvant tra- setting, inevitably, we're over treating some patients and um, even with these results. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that you're going to get the opportunity to also look at ctDNA. And of course, you probably can't tell us now. But that sort of work may really, I mean, your hazard ratios could come, come crashing down even further. Who knows?
1: Good stuff. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I appreciate can, it. Can, can you fill in one of those crickets uh, sound effects? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Cricket sound.
1: <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thank
2: you
0: very awesome. much. Bye. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya.